Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's not an uncommon literary device to mask who a story is really about until the right time. Sometimes we get it, and sometimes we miss it, but it always reworks our perspective. Brian Brown, Director of Discipleship, continues the series Chasing Truth with this sermon entitled Seeing Christ in All of Scripture, which covers Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, and 44 to 49, and 1 Samuel chapter 17. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. I absolutely love a movie with like a mind-blowing twist at the end. You know, the kind of movie that as soon as it ends, you have to start watching it again because everything just changed. There was a a TV series, I'm not going to tell you what it is, one, because I'm going to spoil the whole thing, and two, I probably can't recommend it. (laughs) But the main characters (laughs) were um, two people, and not really sure which one is the main guy. And there's some conflict, there's some kind of glaring plot holes that you're not quite sure what's going on, but the story is getting compelling, and you're starting to see that they're going somewhere. And then the very last scene of the very last episode, you realize that these two main characters are not two different people. You realize it's one person with a split personality disorder, and you just go, what? And then the credits roll, and you're like, oh my goodness, what does that mean? And so you feel like you've got to start from episode one again because you're, you're figuring out, okay, I, I misread everything. I was thinking one thing and you've revealed this and now all the facts are different. I see them in a different light. And in many ways, that's what happened to me a few years ago. I was on staff with a college ministry and I was, uh, we had a staff training and there was a pastor named George Robertson who did a couple days for us and he opened Luke 24 And he talked about how the whole Bible points to Jesus. Now, I was in Sunday school. I knew to raise my hand and say Jesus anytime somebody asked. I was good for that. But when he opened the Bible and explained that to us, then he he spent the next couple days going through passage after passage after passage in the Old Testament and showing us this is how this points to Jesus. And for me, it was like that plot twist at the end. Oh, this is what that means? And I got this deep curiosity and excitement in studying God's word. I read as much as I could. I I actually chose the seminary I went to because I thought that's where I could get this the best. And my heart was just burning with joy because I started to see that the Bible wasn't just a list of random stories here and there or things that you need to do. And it wasn't that I was taught wrongly, it's that I just didn't see it yet. And as I started to see these things, I started to see gray stripping off of every page and I fell more and more in love with the word of God. And so I hope that that's what we get to do today. I hope that God does that in our hearts as we hear his word. So I'm gonna start in Luke chapter 24, and I'm gonna start by giving you the plot twist. And then we're gonna go rewatch a scene that we've all probably seen before, whether you've been in church or not, I guarantee you know this scene. So let's start with Luke 24. And at the beginning of Luke chapter 24, this is the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. So he was crucified three days earlier. He's risen from the dead. And two ladies go out to the tomb. They were gonna dress his body and put perfume on it, all that kind of stuff. But they get there and the tomb is open. It's empty and there's angels that meet them and say, hey, he's not here. He rose from the dead, just like he said. And so they run back to the disciples. Jesus is close as his friends. 
And they say, Jesus rose from the dead and we saw these angels, so two of them take off running to the tomb. They see an empty tomb as well. And so word starts spreading, Jesus' body is not in the tomb. And then Luke jumps scenes. So suddenly, in, in Luke 24, we're on a road. It's two men walking down a road together uh, to a place called Emmaus. And a third man shows up and starts walking with them. Turns out this is Jesus, but in his resurrection body, he's not recognized by them. And these guys are, are in a pretty bad mood. And Jesus says, what's wrong? And they basically tell him, are you the only person in this entire country who has no idea what happened these last few days? Jesus, we thought was gonna be the savior of Israel. He died. And now there's this crazy rumor going around from these two ladies that he's not dead anymore. And here is how Jesus answers them. You'll see it in verse 25 of Luke chapter 24. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. They keep walking together. They stop for a meal. And as soon as Jesus breaks the bread and hands it to them, they recognize him and they realize it's him. And then he leaves. And they're standing there looking at each other. And here's what they say in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So they saw the end of the story and they realized all of the meaning. They, they were probably good Jewish people and they knew their Old Testament very well. And suddenly when Jesus opened the scriptures to them and they understood how all of these events were pointed to, their hearts lit on fire. They were so excited. And then later that night, uh, Jesus appears to his disciples. In verse 44, this is what he says to him. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus is using some shorthand here. When he says the law and the prophets or the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that would be shorthand that any Jewish person would understand to mean the entire Old Testament. So when he says this, he is, he is opening the scriptures to them and saying this whole thing has been pointing to me from the very beginning. This whole thing has been leading in that direction. The whole Bible is pointing us to the person and the work of Jesus. So what do I mean by that? The Old Testament isn't just a bunch of trivia tidbits for historical facts about Jesus's life. For example, you think about Isaiah 7. This is the passage that says Jesus will be born of a virgin. This, this coming savior will be born of a virgin, but it also says that his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so it's giving us an identity for who this will be that's coming to save. God himself will come to save his people. And then think about Micah 5. This is the passage that, that says he will be born in Bethlehem. But it doesn't just say that he'll be born in that place. It says that he will be a shepherd and he will reign to the ends of the earth and that he will bring peace. So we don't just learn about him and when he will exist, but we learn what he will do and who he is. 
Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And he loads both of these books with tons and tons of Old Testament references to help us understand who Jesus is. Just to name a few, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 31, 69, 118, Isaiah 49, 53, 55, and we could go on and on and on. And it's not just explicit prophecies that talk about who Jesus will be. It's all of the genres of scripture are foreshadowing in profound ways this coming savior. It's as though these these threads of redemption are woven throughout history and they all come together in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we begin to understand the threads of redemptive history all working into Jesus. This picture I just absolutely love made that stick with me. Every thread running into Jesus. Uh, You think about key themes in the Old Testament that you'll see Jesus fulfilling. Uh, One of them I would call uh, substitutionary death. You may be familiar that the Jews had a sacrificial system and and one of those sacrifices was was called a sin offering. And in a sin offering, the Jews would have said, I know that I'm a sinner and I understand that, that what we deserve for sin is the death penalty. And so they bring a lamb and essentially what this offering is and saying, I understand my guilt, but this lamb will die in my place. That's what the sin offering did. It's a substitutionary death. And that's something that has a thread that runs throughout the scripture pointing to Jesus. Think about Isaiah 53. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, but it's, it's almost impossible not to picture the cross when you hear it. Starting in verse five. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you hear the substitutionary death in there? That's who this savior will be. That's what he will do, but it won't be a lamb, it'll be a person. And skip down to verse nine. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So historical fact that happened a few hundred years later. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he puts himself forward as an offering for guilt. And you know what? Those sacrifices don't survive. They die there. But then you read this. He shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. Dead people don't see their offspring and prolong their days. The Savior will be alive again. In some way, We can read Isaiah 53 and say this was talking about what would happen, not just in the historical facts, but the the very substance of the work of Jesus. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. This is the plot twist at the end of the story. This is all of the threads weaving together to make the whole story finally make sense. Jesus lived a perfect life, died in our place as our punishment for sins, rose from the dead, and thereby defeated sin's grip over us and death's reign over us. He instead gives life and freedom and this is what the entire story is about from the beginning to the end. But the New Testament is not written independent of the Old Testament. The New Testament is written in light of the Old Testament. As we begin to understand the Old Testament, it gives the proper background and understanding for who Jesus would be. Yet at the same time, when we realize who he is, we can read the Old Testament in a new light and so in a way we get to read in both directions. 
We understand who Jesus is through his scripture, and then we understand scripture more deeply through who Jesus is. The book of Hebrews says it in a beautiful way, I think. It, it uses the language of shadows. It talks about these things in the Old Testament as shadows of a heavenly reality. Colossians 2 says it so well. In verse 17, it says it this way. These are a shadow of the things to come, but Christ is the substance. You see my shadow on the ground, you know that I exist, right? But you don't talk to the shadow. You see through the shadow to the person himself. And in a way, you could say it, Jesus stands in his full presence in the New Testament, and as he does, it casts a shadow over the Old Testament. And as we read the Old Testament, we see those shadows, and we realize they're pointing us ahead to a real person, someone who is coming. So we have these shadows pointing us to Jesus. Hebrews itself, the book, explains the entire temple and priesthood and sacrificial systems were not effective in and of themselves, but only so much as they point ahead to this person who is coming as the true redeemer. Read Hebrews 10 sometime this afternoon. It's absolutely fascinating how it reads the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is. The New Testament, though, it's not simply explaining every single passage in the Old Testament, but it is teaching us how to read it well in light of the end of the story. Uh, the Bible also shows us redemptive history. There is an incredible unity in the scripture. It is a literary masterpiece. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons C.S. Lewis, and, as an atheist, was drawn to the Bible because he, he studied literature and he said, I've never seen anything written this way. But it's not just a literary masterpiece because it's also real history. When the author of history also writes a book, it's amazing what can happen. So uh, if you think about, where am I here? Um, these events were real historical events that actually happened and actually had meaning in the day in which they happened. But because God is the author of history, they also had meaning far beyond the events that actually happened. I love how Ed Clowney says it this way. Only God's revelation can build a story where the end is anticipated from the beginning and where the guiding principle is not chance or fate, a promise. Human authors may build fiction around a plot they have devised, but only God can shape history to a real and ultimate purpose. So what does that mean for us? We have to read the story with the end in mind. If we don't, we misinterpret the details. We miss what actually was happening. I'm not reading stories of how to be morally better or to find victory in my life I'm reading stories of a God who rescues broken people, who heals the sick, who raises the dead. I'm reading stories of a God who forgives the most unforgivable sins. And it changes the way I look at the scripture. So, so what does that look like? We've seen the twist. We've seen the big reveal at the end. So we're gonna go rewatch a scene now. This is one I think you've all seen before. David and Goliath, right? Whether you've been in the church or not, I think it's something you're familiar with. It's in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn over there. So what's happening in this chapter is you've got the Philistine army is standing on a hill over here, and there's a valley called the Valley of Elah, and then you've got the Israelite army, and they're standing on a hill over here. And they're facing each other, but they're not fighting. They're looking each, at each other across the valley, and one thing keeps happening every single day. And I'll, I'll pick up in uh, verse 4 here. And there was a, uh, oh, where is it? And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. 
Now that word champion, that's actually a military title. This was a role that he played. And in that day, a champion would be somebody who would be a representative of his army. And essentially he would say, you take one from your side to fight me. Whoever wins, wins the war. We can do this instead of having an all out battle. And so that's who Goliath was. He was a champion, a representative of the people to fight. And so here's what he looks like. His height was six cubits in a span, which apparently means he was nine feet, nine inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. Most of the Philistines would have worn more like a headdress and not had a real metal helmet. So he was the only one with that bronze helmet. Uh, And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which was somewhere between 120 and 130 pounds. The dude was strong. (laughs) He had uh, a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, which is basically like a scimitar, a big sword. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, which is apparently large. I've never seen one. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is about 15 pounds at the end of it. That's big. And his shield bearer went out before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul, who is their king? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. It could also be translated, I heap shame on the ranks of Israel today. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul, the king, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So that's what's happening. As a matter of fact, that happens every single day in the morning and in the evening for 40 days. He walks out there and taunts them and nobody is willing to fight. They're terrified. So then David comes on the scene. Uh, David had three older brothers who were in war. Uh, They were a part of that battle. David was not in the war, which means he was probably too young. So he was under the age of 20, which would have been the fighting age in that time. I'm picturing like a high school junior or senior, probably. And he was essentially had two part-time jobs. One is he was shepherding his father's sheep in Bethlehem, which was about 15 miles away from where this battle was. But in that day, uh, the, the country didn't give rations to their soldiers. So if their soldiers were gonna eat, their family was gonna bring food to them at the battle lines. So David, on behalf of his dad, would take care of the sheep, and then every couple days he would take food to his brothers. And so this is the scene where where David is bringing food to his brothers in the army and and Goliath comes out and David hears for the first time Goliath's challenge. And here's what David, how David responds. You see it in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, it's interesting, when David looks at this, he doesn't see it the way the other people see it. Uh, In that day, uh, when you went to war, the winner of the war won because their gods were superior. They looked at these battles as a war of gods above the battle. And so what David hears is not just an insult from Goliath that their armies aren't militarily competent. He hears an insult against God himself. 
And so David reframes this whole thing theologically, and he's mad. And so here's what he does. He, he goes, again, so picture this. You've got this probably high school age kid. He goes straight to the king of the entire nation and says, let me fight him. And Saul's like, no, man, no, <laughs> just please, no. But here's, listen to David's argument. This is the best argument to fight I've ever heard. Uh, verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. I punched a lion in the face, bro. Like that's his argument. <laughs> Come on, send me to war. It says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears in this uncircumcised Philistine. He'll be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. <laughs> it's like, good luck, kid. But here's the thing, though. Saul is making a huge gamble because you remember what happens if they lose? They become slaves of this whole other nation. Saul is that desperate. He's like, okay, if, if nothing else, at least take my armor because the king of the nation would have had the best armor. And so David puts on the armor. It doesn't say it was too big for him. It just says he hasn't tested it yet, which means he wasn't comfortable moving in it. He wasn't comfortable fighting. And so what does he do? He goes outside of the tent and he looks around for a stick and some rocks. And we pick up with Goliath watching this happen. And uh, let's see, verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. This is like, this is like the weigh-in at the UFC fight, right? The day before where they're just staring each other nose to nose in this, the trash talk session. So here's what, here's what the Philistine has to say. You, uh, let's see, am I a dog that you come after me with sticks? The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of all the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand, mic drop. <laughs> my goodness. So then you have this, I love this scene. So you're, you've got people over for your house for a pay-per-view fight or something like that. You've watched all the preliminary fights. You're coming to the main event. Everybody's got their food and you're ready for the fight and here's what happens. And when the Philistine arose and came to drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle to meet with the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. This is like a one-punch knockout. Right? You've been waiting for this whole story and it's over in like five seconds. Really? That's it? So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of, the, in the hand of David. My goodness. So how do we read this story? If you read it the way that I normally read it, you read it this way. I, when I was in high school, I used to teach a karate class and I had, I had five and six-year-old kids in there. 
And there's one day I was wearing a, a red uniform top, and one of the little kids decides to say, you look like Spider-Man. I was like, that's cool, I'll own that. And so the kids began calling me Mr. Spider-Man in that class for the next little while. I love the Spider-Man movies. As a matter of fact, I'm still trying to get off of it, but every time I get a weird bug bite, I, I give it a try, it still hasn't happened. <laughs> but when I watch those Spider-Man movies, I wanna be Spider-Man, right? I want to be the hero of the story. And unfortunately, in a lot of ways, that taught me how to read the Bible, the way I watch movies. I want to be the hero of the story. And so the first reading of this text is the one that I would call I need to be a hero, which is probably a moralistic reading. So what does that look like? I'm Spider-Man. I mean, I'm David. I'm David. I am the hero of the story. So what does that mean Goliath is? Goliath is uh, the challenges that my life has. Maybe it's my own sin. Maybe it's the thing that's keeping me from having the success I want. Maybe it's a suffering that's holding me down. If you're a Hawks fan, maybe it's the Milwaukee Bucks. I don't know. I need to have courage. This is the moral of the story, though. I need to have courage to run into the battle like David because the underdog who has faith always wins, right? What does that do when we read the Bible that way? When we read the Bible, we come away with little more than a few more items on an endless list of things we have to do to have a victory in life or to get God to like us. At best, that'll leave you exhausted and insecure because you know you're not actually the hero of every situation, but you're pretending. At worst, you'll be absurdly arrogant. You'll take credit for other people's success, always pretending to be the hero. You'll see every conversation as a competition to win, covering up all your faults until you become a shell of yourself because you know that if you're exposed as not the hero, everything's over. If something happens in your life that derails your hopes, you'll go into despair. Because how do you recover from that? Or maybe you'll just decide that God can't even exist if all of this has fallen apart this way. But here's the really good news. Luke 24 does not allow us to read this passage this way. As a matter of fact, it's not even the most natural reading of 1 Samuel 17. Do you remember what David said when he was trash-talking Goliath? Do you remember why he said he would win? It's in verse 46. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. So this is the second way we can read the text. I'll call it the I need a hero reading or the Christ-centered reading. David himself doesn't even see himself as the hero of the story, does he? He sees God as the deliverer. He sees God as the one who's gonna fight for him. Goliath keeps talking about weapons and David keeps talking about the Lord who will deliver. When David goes to Saul and he gives his lion speech, he doesn't say, it's because I know how to fight wild animals. He says, it's because God has delivered me over and over, even from this, how much more will he deliver me from somebody who puts shame on him? Can you picture him walking out of the armory with just his regular clothes on, hunting for rocks? David is viewing this moment not with simple confidence in his own underestimated ability. He's viewing this in light of a God who rescues people, who fights on their behalf. And so the story is not pointing you to marvel at David. You're pointed to marvel at the God who rescues through improbable circumstances. The emphasis of the narrative is not simply David killed a giant, but that God used a kid 
with a rock and a stick to defeat a warrior that everybody else was afraid to face. David was God's champion to work on, his, on behalf of the people. So who's the hero? Certainly David he was a real historical person. This is a real historical event. This isn't just metaphor for life. This actually happened. But was David's victory over Goliath and the Philistines, was that the end of every war, every battle? No, laughably no. As a matter of fact, David, when he became king later in his life, he fought the Philistines over and over again. As a matter of fact, one of the cities that the Philistines established at this time was named Gaza, and they're still at war today. This did not put an end to the war. This was just a piece of the story. It wasn't the end of the story. There are plenty of times when David himself was helpless and needed rescue. David's victory over Goliath is not where we put our hope. It's not the end of the story. And so in this way, we get to see the shadow. We start seeing, hey, this is pointing to something bigger that would come later. It's pointing to a greater rescuer than David, a God who fights on our behalf, who uses the lowly to shame the strong. You see, David reminds us, reminds us of another champion, a representative on behalf of the people who would go to battle not as a shepherd boy, but is the good shepherd, and not just risking his life for his people, but giving his life for his people. You see, David should be pointing us to look ahead to a far greater rescuer, a far greater king, a far greater shepherd. If I'm to identify myself with a character in the story, it's not David. It's probably one of the Israelite army who, who was armed to the teeth and ready to fight, and every time Goliath comes out, I've got to change my pants. That's who I am in the story. I'm terrified and I can't rescue myself. I can't fight him. I need a hero. I need somebody who will rescue. And in Jesus, we have that hero. He didn't just win one battle that would flare up over and over and over again. He went to the war to end all wars. He faced our greatest enemy, sin and death. And he gave himself over to it on our behalf. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, he cancels the penalty of sin and he puts death to death. So that like David, when he's righteously taunting Goliath before the fight, we can look at our enemy in the face and righteously along with Paul taunt it. And we can say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can look death confidently in the face and say, the battle belongs to the Lord. That's how we read this story. I love how Ed Clowney puts it again. If we forget the storyline of the Old Testament, we also miss the witness of their faith, that ambition that cuts the heart out of the Bible. Sunday school stories are then told as tamer versions of the Sunday comics, where Samson substitutes for Superman and David's meeting with Goliath dissolves into an ancient Hebrew version of Jack the Giant Killer. No, David is not a brave little boy who isn't afraid of the big bad giant. He's the Lord's anointed, chosen of God to be the king and deliverer of Israel. God chose David as a king after his own heart in order to prepare the way for David's great son, our deliverer and champion. So what does it do when we start to read the Bible in light of who Jesus is and we see it pointing to him? In one way, the pressure's off. You don't have to be the hero of every situation in your life. You have a hero that's gone before you. The story of the Bible is not about you. It's about him, but it is for you because of what he did on your behalf. 
when we see that, our motivations begin to change. When we, when we look at the good things that characters do in the Bible and we say, well, I wanna have faith like David. Good, yes, you should do that. You should look at the Bible and see these virtues and, and want to imitate them. But here's the deal, it flips our motivation because we don't do these things to get God to like us or to get the victory that we want because that's already happened. He already loves you and he cares for you. So when we obey, when we live in light of this, it's a response, a joyful response like Tony preached last week. Our faith doesn't stare forward at an invincible enemy that we'll never be able to face. It looks back on the cross and proclaims the battle belongs to the Lord because it's over. He won and we're on that team. So what does that look like tomorrow? Literally tomorrow, where are you gonna be at this time? Chasing kids around the house? You gonna be in the office? Where will you be? What is knowing that you don't have to be the hero of every story due to the anxiousness welling up in your heart? What is knowing that you don't have to be the hero of the story due to the conversation you're having in the office, that you don't have to prove your competence? You can rest in who God's made you to be. What does it do for the, think, the way you think about raising your kids when you know that only God is the rescuer? The pressure's off and peace comes in its place. But in the big picture, I also wanna challenge you to think about how do you read the Bible? Do you read it as a moralistic list of things that you should do to get God to like you? That's not how it's written. That's not what it's for. Luke 24 says that it's all about Jesus. And when it's all about Jesus, the gospel drips off of every page and we see grace upon grace upon grace. Uh, if, if you wanna dig into this more, I would so encourage you to. It's been one of the most fruitful endeavors of my life. Uh, listen to sermons differently. You're gonna hear it here. You're gonna hear shadows pointing ahead to the Savior over and over and over again. Uh, there's a, a study Bible called the Gospel Transformation Study Bible that I think is incredibly helpful. All of the notes in the bottom were written by the people that taught me this stuff. And it shows us how they point ahead to the Savior. Uh, another one, as I've read from it a few times, a book called The Unfolding Mystery by Edmund Clowney. Uh, it is technical, but it's short, which is good. If it takes a long time to read, it's worth it. It has been one of the greatest influences in my life. But if I read the story with the end in mind, when I know the plot twist, David is certainly not the only redemptive thread that runs through this story. They're all over the place. When I read the story of Adam and Eve's creation and their fall into sin, I don't look at it and think, boy, I need to try harder than they did. I see a promise in Genesis 3.15 where God says, through the offspring of the woman, I will crush the head of the serpent. When I read the story of Abraham leaving his father's home to a land that he didn't know about, I don't only see a man of faith. I also see a shadow of one who would leave his father's home in heaven and come down to earth to bring us to himself. When I read the law in Exodus 20, I read it in the right order. Not that God gave his law while his people were slaves so that they would do good enough and he'd rescue them. No, it's a God who rescued helpless people out of slavery and then said, here is my law so that you can follow me. When I read the story of Samson, I don't see the incredible Hulk and learn how to be a more dominant leader. I see a man who gave his life to save his people. But then in, in the shadow pointing ahead, I see a man who gave his life not because of his own sin, but because of our sins so that we would be rescued from our enemies. When I read the story of Solomon, the son of David, I don't just try harder to be more wise, I run to wisdom himself in Jesus. 
When I see the temple worship in the Old Testament, I see the sacrifices and, and I see a lamb that was slain for my sin. I see a high priest who represents me before God based on his merit, not on my merit. I see God's presence in the midst of his people, which was real in Jesus and will one day be our reality for the rest of eternity. When I read Psalm 23, I don't just have fond feelings of God, but I think of a good shepherd who went into death so that he could carry us through the valley of the shadow of death and we could fear no evil in that place. You see, when you know the end of the story, it changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much that you sent your son that we would have life. Father, we thank you so much that in all things you're good and in all things you reign. And Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, a sense of peace and relief knowing that you are the great hero, that you are the great savior. And would you give us rest in that? Fill our worship as we sing to you now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.